Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. What's up, everybody? I'm Joey Powell on InsideCarolina.com, and we have another episode for you of the Coast to Coast podcast. Special thanks to Johnny T-Shirt for sponsoring. You're listening to the Coast to Coast Podcast here on InsideCarolina.com. With me, as always, I'm just Joey Powell, but the guys you're here to hear, that's H-E-A-R to H-E-R-E. Wait, did I say that right? No, I got it backwards. H-E-R-E-T-O-H-E-A-R. Here to hear. You guys know what I meant. You've, you know this gig. You know I'm going to butcher something on the intro regardless. But Sherelle McMillan, Sean Moran are here. We appreciate those guys joining us. Special edition tonight because we've got the National Basketball Director for 24-7 Sports, Eric Bossy, joining us. And we're going to talk a lot about basketball recruiting. Most of you who are subscribers to this show are used to hearing us talk about not only recruiting for the Tar Heels, but Tar Heel current roster, all that good stuff. Well, we're going to get pretty specific about national recruiting, kind of some perceptions, because if there's anybody that has the widest of wide-angle views of college basketball recruiting, it's, it's Eric. So, Eric, first off, how you feeling, man? I'm doing great. I appreciate you guys having me on. No, man, it's our pleasure. Uh, well, I, I will say that the pleasure is all mine. I'm sure Sherelle and Sean probably are are used to chopping it up with you guys because you're all old friends. But uh, as the the resident new guy here, I am thankful for you being here. Sherelle, Sean, how you guys feeling? Doing well. I hope you didn't scare Eric off with your spelling uh, there in the first 30, 45 seconds because that was that was a little rough. Look, man, it's it's not my first false start, but the people, I think, love you guys enough that they're willing to overlook my shortcomings, and they're definitely going to be excited enough to hear from Eric today. Um, That's all right. I'm, I'm too annoyed with my lighting situation right now to be annoyed by anything anyone else has got going on. So if you see me fidgeting, it's because I'm really, really not happy with the shadow situations I've got going right now, and I didn't have time to brush my hair. Well. You've got, look, you've got a lid Glorious on. Glorious hair it is. <laughs> you've got a lid on, and our YouTube viewers are going to be okay with it regardless. Uh, Eric is also a, a voter, or he's a, a voter for the McDonald's All-American game and is also uh, a Naismith, on the Naismith uh, Player of the Year committee. So, you know, if you ever have any issues with who wins the award, just at Eric on Twitter. I'm sure he's probably never heard any complaints of that sort before. So just hit Eric up, and he'll take care of all of your, your garbage requests. Uh, Eric. <laughs> As you are well aware, there are some big seismic changes going on in college basketball right now. And specifically relevant to this show, uh, Hubert Davis replacing Roy Williams, uh, Roy announcing his retirement in April. I think the first thing I'd like to throw out to you are just what are your impressions of the first class that Hubert Davis has has put together uh, in those commits that have come from 2020? And again, to refresh, those four guys are Seth Trimble, uh, Will Shaver, uh, Jalen Washington, and Tyler Nichols. So in those four guys, from, from your view, what are your impressions of this class? Yeah, so it's something that we've discussed about quite a bit on the board. 
I think it's, it's a really good first effort out there. Um, you know, obviously Carolina fans, fans of every school, they always want the highest ranked guys and, and the biggest name guys. And it seems like we obsess over the misses or why did we prioritize this guy? Cause he went down in the rankings. This other guy went up in the rankings, you know, you got to put a roster together. And part of that is finding the guys that say yes. And then letting the rest kind of take care of itself. But I think that, they had guys that they, that they targeted. And for the most part, their, their A-line targets are guys that then landed, you know, they, they brought in Shaver as he was their first official visitor. Right. So clearly, clearly there's something that they liked there quite a bit. They got him locked up. Jalen Washington is someone that, you know, there's some concern with the injury history there, but when he's right, he's really talented and you can't blame them for prioritizing him. And they beat out some really good schools for them. Uh, Seth Trimble was someone that I think people thought they might have trouble with due to the fact that, you know, his brother JP went there and there's a mixed bag of who does or doesn't get blame anytime a a prospect doesn't quite pan out to expectations or things like that. But they did a good job of going in there and winning over that family and winning over that recruit. And then, you know, with Nickel, they had to make a hard decision. Do we lock up this guy who's ready to commit? Or do we wait around and possibly miss out on another target, i.e. someone like Cam Whitmore, who's going to be deciding this week? You know, you, you got to make hard decisions. And I think they've done a great job of locking in on guys. Um, maybe something that frustrated Carolina fans in the past was not casting the widest nets under Roy Williams. And I don't think they've gone full Henry Bibby mode here where they're offering <laughs> everyone in the top 100. But, you know, they're, they're definitely casting a wider net, being out and about a little more. Um, dipping their toes into some different waters. So I think all things being equal, it's, it's a heck of a start. Um, you know, you've got a lot of guys who are going to contribute to the program. And, and I think the real X factor here is just going to be Jalen Washington and his health. If, if he gets right, then everyone will be like, oh, my God, you know, what a great job. Hubert Davis, he, he took this guy who was underrated now as, as like a top 50-ish player and turned him into a pro or whatever, because that's the ultimate upside for Jalen if he's right. So – I've said it before time and time again on, on the message boards that I see, but I think this is a very good first effort from Hubert and his staff. And I think it would have been pretty unreasonable to expect much more out of him. Yeah. I appreciate that answer. And you segued really well into what I, what I like to ask next before I let Cheryl and Sean jump in here. Um, I think we've talked about it kind of ad nauseum here, specifically in the differences between Hubert Davis's style. And you talked about the, you know, the casting a wide net, not going full Bibby. But I, I do uh, – I would love to hear your kind of opinion on what the perception is or, or how you feel like um, folks are receiving Hubert Davis's different style versus the Roy Williams style, which, again, you, you nailed it, that some folks got a little, a little antsy with after a while. How are you seeing the differences there as a whole, and do you feel like there are any perception changes – amongst the recruiting world yeah um perception change i'm not sure just yet i think it's, it's kind of early to measure but it's there's so many more options out there for kids especially the top end kids you've got g league you've got ote um, overseas options are still out there there's no choice but to dig a little deeper and throw a few more offers out there at least i don't think so We'll see how the, if any perception changes, but at the end of the day, you know, Carolina is, is Carolina. When you've got that name behind you, 
you're going to be able to get into some doors that, that not every coach can get into, especially not every first year head coach, regardless of experience, whether that be in the NBA, playing at Carolina, being on ESPN, things like that, which are all nice. But, you know, that, that Carolina that is still what gets people in the door, right? Um, it's just it's the blue blood thing. It, it helps out all the blue bloods. Um, so we'll see how much of a perception shift there is. But I would say that to the casual observer or maybe uh, other college coaches that I run across on the trail, AU coaches, whoever, I think they've noticed uh, that Huber's maybe a little bit more out and about maybe a little more, I don't want to, I don't know if accessible is the right word, but it probably is actually a little bit more accessible than Roy Williams was, especially over these last couple of years. And I think that ultimately we're going to find that Roy, who I, who I have said before, I consider a top five coach of all time in college basketball probably did Carolina favors by stepping down at the time he did rather than dragging things out. You know, ideally, there would have been a little bit more heads up, a little bit more warning that this is coming, but you know, he decided it's time. And, and rather than, than drag things out, he's like, look, I'm walking away. I'm gonna let you guys take over before any damage happens from me kind of not being fully invested in all of this. I appreciate you saying that. Cause I think that's something we have kind of supposed here on the show. And I think folks have kind of said, kind of as an aside, but you're the first person, especially somebody that is as plugged into the national uh, basketball scene as you are. That's actually said that out loud about Roy kind of doing UNC a favor. And I think that, um, I think that as, as things progress and you see the, the distance from the Roy um, coaching tenure get farther apart, I think folks might start to agree with you. But you're the first person to say that out loud. I appreciate that. Sherell, you want to jump in here? Yeah, I was going to say uh, to his point about Tobias's point about Carolina kind of being Carolina, you know, with a player like Tyler Nickel, you know, if that was Virginia Tech against, you know, maybe Georgetown or Maryland, I don't know if he would have waited uh, on UNC. I think he probably would have committed to Virginia Tech already. So that's an example of a kid that they offered in June, you know, the very end of June. They kind of held him off on a visit until September until they could kind of get their things in order. And then they reassess, reassess the situation uh, basically the week that he officially visited. So that's an example because I, I think people forget like top 100 kids, there's only 100 of them and there are a lot of colleges. So when you can jump in that late on a top 100 kid, it still talks about kind of um, the ability you have to, to recruit and how much of a national name UNC is. So I thought that was a great point. What I wanted to ask you, Eric, and for people listening, like, I don't think you realize, I don't know there's anyone out there who talks to more coaches on a daily basis than Bossy. So like when I say credible and experienced and been around for a long time, all those things, I'm not trying to gas them up, but strong it's true. Strong contact list is what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, strong. I mean, I, I would, I'd pay some money to have his, his uh, contact list from his phone. Um, but in your experience, is there a consensus yet on how to build a roster uh, from coaches in this new era of NLI and G League, OTE and all the options? Is it, hey, still go for the top guys for some people? Is it, hey, let's maybe try to work in the middle here? Like, how, have co how are coaches approaching it so far? And is there a consensus? There is no consensus. It changes on a daily basis. It's probably being back out and about with coaches during June and July and not only phone conversations I've had with them through COVID and the 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 explosion of the transfer portal and all this stuff um, and all these new options coming out, it changes, it changes every day because guys just don't know. 
it's it's funny. It used to be really easy in recruiting against someone. Be like, wow, they had five people transfer. You really want to go there? <laughs> you can't do that now because that's going to happen everywhere. That's going to become the new norm. Is at least two, probably. Um, sometimes as many as four or five. It, we're in an era where teams aren't going to be replacing four or five players each each year. We're looking to five to nine to maybe even ten that guys are going to have to go about. And how you do that is is still very much up to debate. Myself, I kind of like. I think we're supposed. These guys are supposed to be coaches. They're supposed to pride themselves on culture and development and these things, right? So, I don't believe that you can establish a strong culture within a program if you're too reliant on one year one year, especially in the transfer market, one year guys, because for the most part, we all get excited about transfers, but you know, there's also a good chance that they were maybe someone else's problem somewhere else. So there's a little bit of that that you're working with. So I think what we're going to settle into is eventually kind of a mix. I think what we'll see is a target of high school players for the early signing period. When you know, okay, here's four spots we have to fill. Let's try and get some sustainability, some stability. And these are the guys that are going to be our core guys that we build around. Then in the spring, when the defections for either the NBA transfers, what have you, now we'll hit the transfer portal and kind of see how we can plug in those holes. You know, maybe there might be a high level high school guy that fits one of these holes, but I think we'll see spring recruiting lean more towards the transfer portal. Cause I think most people who fall recruiting know that generally the spring, when it comes to high school recruiting, there's really not a lot left over. Uh, that's when we see a lot of reaches. That's when we see the guys that I think who tend to transfer the most are those late signees when guys are like, hey, we got a scholarship. Let's roll the dice on this mid-major kid and, and maybe he'll work out. So I think we'll see less of that happening and we'll see more of, okay, we're going to use the transfer portal to, you know, coaches like to stay old. They like to get old. Um, they're going to use that. And I think it'll eventually blend into a, to an IX, um, I think most coaches would like to have a – most, I think, would like – prefer to build with the high school kids and the guys are going to be there for a while. But we are going to find some. They're going to go full transfer portal with this thing, and it's going to be a couple of years before it shakes out. But me personally, I would focus high school fall, transfer portal in the spring with maybe a high school kid or two thrown in, and then – see how that shakes out over the next couple of years and, and sees that the right way for my program. And if not, then, you know, I've got to re I've got to reassess and maybe switch up my plan on how I do things. And while there's not a consensus, I would say that probably the majority of coaches that I deal with and speak with are kind of going down that route. Gotcha. Was it, you were the first person, I think this is probably not quite a year ago, like last November, you were like, Hey, this is going to be insane. Cause we kept asking like, Hey, what do you think Carolina's going to do in this class? And you know, they haven't offered many guys, et cetera, et cetera. He said, just wait until April. Cause it's going to be the most insane thing we've ever seen. Obviously there's not going to be a confluence of super seniors and all that um, before, but was it more surprising that there, I forget how many Travis was tracking it, but I forget how many people ended up in the portal. Did it surprise you that it was that many? No, honestly, I thought it'd be more. Um, I think the, the, I predicted utter chaos and full-on goat rodeo status in the <laughs> recruiting world. And I think we got pretty close to there, um, especially with the whole super senior thing being added on top of it and kind of could see that was coming. There was a lot of talk about that potentially being a thing. So, you know, that in the back of your mind and you know that, Hey, 
they can't get out and watch these guys in person, they're going to hit the transfer market. So we saw that come to fruition. And I think, gosh, don't quote me, but I want to say we got up to 17 to 1800 transfers. Uh, Kids in the high school class of 2021 were hurt pretty bad. There were a lot of guys who missed out on opportunities to either make that jump from mid-major to high major or low major to mid-major or, or to just get a division one scholarship period. And then also I think uh, what we're going to really need to look at sometime down the road. And I think this is eventually going to kind of bring things back to a little bit more of a consistent order down the road is there's a lot of kids sitting in that transfer portal that have no home that thought, Hey, I scored 3.1 points per game at this low major. Everyone's going to want me because I'm a transfer. And you know, now they've got nowhere to go. I think as we see more of that come down the road, it'll, it'll kind of, it'll be get crazy. I won't be surprised in the next one or two years, a couple of years, it's going to get a little crazier even than it's already been, but then we'll see a regression. We'll, we'll work our way back to the mean and things will kind of readjust and even themselves out. And barring other changes that could be coming down the road, we'll see, we'll see an evening because we don't know yet how is name, image, and likeness going to play into this? Uh, does the NBA say to heck with it? We're letting kids come out of high school. We're going to scrap the G League or we're going to totally blow up the G League and, and, and take what overtime is trying to do and, and do that with the G League. Like there's so many unknowns out here and we don't even know what the NCAA is going to look like in a couple of years. So in a, in a world of how the NCAA has operated for the last 15 to 20 years, I would anticipate a little bit of a return to the norm after a little bit more chaos. But until we find out what other chaos is in store for us, we'll see. Hopefully it gets back to a little bit to normal. I know the, the college basketball purists and enthusiasts are hoping for that, but we've opened a Pandora's box here and man, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. You listen to the coast to coast podcast on InsideCarolina.com. I'm Joey Powell. Uh, Sherelle McMillan, Sean Moran, always here. But tonight we've got a special guest of Eric Bossy, National Basketball Director for 24-7 Sports. And i got to say, I, I've already gotten my, uh, my giggles out of this show just because it's the first time anybody said Goat Rodeo on the Coast to Coast podcast. So uh, as Sherelle and Sean know my penchant for saying random things, I'm in debt to you, sir, for using Goat Rodeo. Sean, what did you want to jump in here with? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll go in, in terms of the recruiting class that – UNC signed there. You got to see, um, you know, over the summer periods, especially at Peach Jam, um, Seth and and Washington a lot. Seth made a pretty big jump, you know, just from the summer when you guys were able to reset the rankings, and then after after Peach Jam, um, I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about what you guys saw. Obviously, he played well towards the end of Peach Jam, but what you guys saw to kind of raise him up to that top twenty-five ish status and and how you could see him fitting in uh, at Carolina. Yeah, so um, the biggest thing for me has been the evolution of Seth from a guy that I, I wasn't quite sure was a full-time point guard to somebody that I feel pretty comfortable that he can have the ball in his hands, the majority of the, the possessions, be the primary decision maker. Uh, so seeing that and seeing him lead and seeing him not get frustrated when others don't complete plays because sometimes as a point guard, you're limited, especially in the assist and turnover things to what those around you do and, and how you react to that was something that was a little shaky for him uh, in the past. And I saw a lot of growth in those areas and with his leadership and 
obviously he's a freaky athlete. He can really sit down and defend guys. He can get in the lane and create. I think we're seeing a roster that is being built to accommodate some shooters and to have a few more shooters. So if you're going to have shooters and be looking to spread the floor, you got to have a guy who can push tempo and who can get into the lane and draw defenders so that you can kick to open guys and force long closeouts and, you know, not as contested jump shots. And I think that's what Seth does best. So I think he's a fit for how they want to play. He can certainly push tempo and, and I'm sure Carolina's going to still run under Hubert Davis. And it just seems like a good fit for the roster that they appear to be going for. Um, you know, I don't want to say they're trying to go golden state, but everyone's trying to do that right now. Just get as many shooters on the floor, you know, the old, the old three is a four these days. The old four is a five. Uh, we're, we're seeing some different things, and I think we're seeing that because while, while Seth isn't a shooter, I think the idea is that the rest of these guys that they're bringing in are going to be shooters and stretch floor. You know, Jalen can stretch the floor. Will Shaver wants to play facing the basket quite a bit. Nickel fits that kind of three, four stretch guy that everybody wants, you know, the combo forward. Uh, so – Trimble's kind of the right guy to play with that. And you look at some of the guys that they've already got there, specifically Kermit Walton, assuming he continues to improve and, and build on what he did as a freshman. You're looking at an ideal guy, I think, to do that. So two things. Uh, I want to start with a kind of high-level question overall, and then I want to jump into Tyler Nickel a little bit. So the high-level question is, as an evaluator, uh, we get this question quite a bit. And honestly, I, I feel like it's hard to do, but I want to ask somebody who does it professionally what is it like to evaluate how uh, a player's defensive skills might translate into college in high school in AU because we know it's so much different and there's so much more offensively that they have to handle so like how how do you assess that it's it's tough um but it's tough because the level of player they're going to be being asked to defend is going to change there are some guys who are able to overcome poor fundamentals or, or poor efforts simply because they're more athletic than the guys like those are things that you don't know, but things like lateral quickness, length, effort, uh, consistently getting after guys and, and showing some spirit on that. And those, those things translate to me. So when you see that out of guys consistently on the defensive end, you can feel pretty safe that if that effort level is there and just Guys who get a lot of deflections, uh, seem to be magnets for the ball. Generally, that doesn't happen by accident. And generally, those things translate. It's the guys that, man, the Seth Trimble was only getting steals because he seems to always let somebody go by and then poke it away. <laughs> you know, that, then I'm a little concerned because that's a, that's a really bad habit that he's forming that's going to be tough to break. But to me, he moves his feet. He gets down in a stance. He sits down. He he. He shows some intensity. You can see that it matters to him. Like you, you'll see him, you know, mutter himself. He's getting beat a couple of times. It takes it personal. And so as an evaluator, I feel pretty good saying, okay, you know what? I think that guy's ability on the defensive end is going to transfer or translate to the next level. Um, does it translate right away? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. There's so much more that's getting thrown at these guys. And you never know. Also what people forget is if you have to carry a big load on the offensive end mentally, you're thinking so much on that end that can kind of screw you up on the defensive end too. So there's a lot that goes into it. Um, we could probably do multiple podcasts on <laughs> evaluating specific defenders and also what translates at specific positions um, defensively. Cause it's, 
how you evaluate a wing defender for the next level is much different than how you evaluate a point guard defender uh, versus how you evaluate a center defender. Uh, so there's a lot that goes into it, but to me, the, the raw athletic ability and consistent effort are, are pretty translatable. And those are the things that me, I kind of key on them. Gotcha. And that leads me into Tyler Nickel, who is UNC's most latest uh, uh, commitment. You know, he's from a small school uh, in Virginia. For, for guys, I, I know we have AU, but for guys who are from those small high schools who put up incredible numbers, um, is there more, um, do they have to do more to prove themselves, I guess, on the AU circuit? Because I, people see, oh, he went to a two-way high school and he averages 32 points a game, it must be because the competition is terrible. Like, how do you guys go about that with someone like him? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I try not to, me personally, ideally, I'll see guys in as many different situations as possible. Hopefully you can see them with a high school team in person, but I'll always try and review some game films and things like that. You want to see them with their summer team. And, and then maybe if you can see them in a camp setting too, that's, that's ideal, right? But it's not always a perfect world. Maybe they're a little bit of, oh, well, he's doing that against lesser competition that people always wonder about. But I try not to I try not to boggle down my mind with things that aren't happening in front of me. When I'm there in the moment, I try and concern myself with, okay, how is he doing against these guys that he's playing against right now? I, I don't really care. If I'm watching Team Loaded play D1 Minnesota, I don't really care what happened in a high school game six months ago because what's happening in front of my eyes at this moment is most important. Now, when I'm putting the entire picture together, then I'm going to go through and, and put all that stuff together. Right. But I guess it factors in some, but I try not to, to factor that in, but you know, we're all human. We're all going to have those thoughts and, you know, the same goes too for the players. I think those guys from smaller schools that don't get as much competition I think they they kind of enter situations knowing like, hey, I probably got to prove myself a little bit more. I'm not going to get the same benefit of the doubt that somebody wants. You know, if we want to look for a recent example of this, another player from Virginia who played small school competition, Mac McClung. Yeah, um, he was unreal against those one A and two A schools, right? But for Team Loaded, he was like the tenth or eleventh man. He he hardly got in and. He did stupid athletic stuff when he got in, but it's like, well, you know, if this guy can really play, how come he's their 10th or 11th guy? And, you know, the Lakers put that guy on a two-way after, after three years of college. So, you know, we, we probably needed to do a better job of, of figuring out what were we missing between what he could do at the high school level and why he was the only 10th or 11th man. You know, why did, why did Rutgers ditch his commitment? You know, um, those are the things that, you know, me as an evaluator, I'm always trying to figure out, was it something I missed? Was it something that was just unavoidable? There's, there's so many ways you can go down that. But yeah, I guess kids from smaller towns and in smaller settings maybe do have a little bit something extra to prove. But that that goes around in all areas. That's not just an evaluator or anything. I think that's something that is built into most of these kids as well. Joey, I'm, I'm going to jump in real quick. I just, something just came to my mind. All right, I'm gonna put you on the spot, Eric. I'm gonna give you some time to think. So I'm gonna uh, now put me on the spot, but give me time. Okay. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna do both. I'm gonna meander a little bit. So I want to know your, your, who you think is your biggest hit. So someone who maybe everyone else didn't really see them being good or great in college. And you said, you know what, I, I see it now. And that person went on to be great. And then 
sadly, I want to know your biggest miss too. Someone who you thought was just going to be a great player in college basketball and maybe just didn't quite turn out right. And you can you maybe go 10, 15 years back. So we're not talking about anybody recently. Yeah, no. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's tough too, because sometimes the, the rankings all adjust themselves out with time. Right. But, you know, I remember years ago when he was between his freshman and sophomore year of high school, sitting down with some Nike executives who were obsessed with Austin rivers and telling them how out of their minds, crazy. I thought they were that they thought that kid was better than Bradley Beal. Um, I was to the point where I had one person who is no longer in the Nike grassroots system. Tell me if I mentioned the two words, Brad and Beal together in a sentence again, he would ban me from Nike events because he was so tired <laughs> of hearing about it. From me. But, you know, everyone thought Brad Beal was a top five player, you know, um, but that, that class goes into, it wasn't necessarily my decision, but I was at rivals at the time. We ranked Anthony Davis ahead of, or Anthony Davis behind Austin rivers and, and, you know, Austin Rivers ahead of Beal too, which I was upset with enough, but I remember thinking like, wow, we're going to, we're going to look pretty bad on this one, but that wasn't, that wasn't my call at that time. Um, others, I, I would like to think that you always want to be on top of the guys that are in your region. So it's not like Ron Baker is the biggest stud of all, but I saw that kid play as a senior. I called dang near every team in the big 12. Definitely called every school in the Missouri Valley and said, you need to take this kid. And it took Wichita State saying he'll walk on for a year for that kid to get a chance to do things. So I thought that was one that I felt pretty good about that. Like, hey, I thought this dude could be pretty good. And I couldn't even get people to watch DVDs that I was willing to send them of his game film. So but then if we had to go misses, like for me personally, it's ranking Scal Abissier ahead of Ben Simmons. Um, I know that's a number one, number two one, and there's certainly others that I can go back and look through and go, oh, what was I thinking? Ranking LeBron Nash or, or Quincy Miller this high or, or whatever. But, you know, the Skull one, that's, that's on me. I, I fell in love with him playing for basically a glorified rec league team that didn't have anyone else any good on it and him dribbling the ball up the floor and shooting three-pointers, and I just – I don't know if it was just being too blind to it or just not having the wherewithal to think, Hey, you know what? He's never going to be asked to play like that or allowed to do that ever again in his life. So nothing he is doing translating. It's, it's, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's a, as coaches love to say, it's fool's gold. Coaches love fool's gold. Right. You weren't, uh, alone. You weren't alone on him. Yeah. You weren't yeah. alone on him either. But, but you know, but Ben Simmons did things that, you know, Throw away that the dude still can't shoot. The guy is different. You know, he's six foot ten, multi-positional player, freak defender. Um, you know, looking back on that one, I, I wish I had a do-over on that one. And that's one that always sticks with me pretty bad. And then, you know, I could go through year by year and you could be like, oh, well, what about this one? And I'd be like, yeah, that one's, that one's pretty Eric, bad. It's okay. We're, we're not going to tell anybody. It's yeah. just between the, just yeah. between the no, points. but I mean, it happens. That's, that's the thing is I, I think uh, one of the things that maybe bugs me some in the role that I do and others in it is there's a lot of people in my profession who rather than just saying, you know what, here's why I thought I did on this player. I got it wrong. Um, want to try and explain away a mistake you know we get stuff wrong we're, we're in 
this isn't the easiest thing to do. We're talking about teenagers. We're attaching a rating to them at 17 or 18 years old. And we're being held to that standard of how did we do when we're not allowed to change our opinions on them at 19, 20, 21, 22, you know, if we were allowed to change those rankings each year, we would probably look a heck of a lot smarter. Right. But I think that by and large, if you look at how many of the higher ranked players tend to get drafted as well, I, I think we're doing a pretty good job in the grand scheme of things, but I always want to be better. You know, every year I look at the projected first round, the NBA draft, and I do an article on like, okay, here's my biggest misses in this draft class. Here's what I think I missed on it. Here's what I saw. Is this something that I could have done better? And if so, what's the lesson I've learned for it? Or is it just, you know what? Hey, you know, I, I, I never saw John Morant play. How could I have possibly known he was going to be that good? Um, clearly a lot of smart people who should have known, didn't know that he was that good. You know, it just happens sometimes. Well, you talked about your biggest hits and your biggest misses, and we appreciate that transparency and authenticity. Uh, but speaking of biggest hits, I'm always kind of want and drawn to Johnny T-shirt as a biggest hit. Because, I mean, that's absolutely blue chip, five-star, top-level talent at johnnytshirt.com. Our friends over there on East Franklin Street in Chapel Hill, they've been sponsoring Inside Carolina for a long time. Uh, they have been absolutely all over the threads and gear game like Eric is all over the recruiting game uh, and the talent evaluation game. So I want everybody to take a second, check out johnnytshirt.com. If you're in town in Chapel Hill, uh, go by their store on East Franklin Street. Uh, if you'd like to, you can order online, pick up outside. They'll even bring it to you curbside. Uh, but if you're ordering online, Make sure you use that quick shipping they have. And Inside Carolina premium subscribers, which if you're a premium subscriber, you already know Eric. You feel like he's part of the family. You can invite him over to your house for you know Sunday minestrone soup or whatever. But if you're a premium Inside Carolina subscriber, you know that you get that extra 10% off the top of your order at Johnny T-Shirt. So Johnny T-Shirt, we love them. Hope you love them. Want you to patronize them, use them, let them outfit you, and have you looking good the next time you set foot on campus or the next time you go to see any of your friends. Don't be that guy that's wearing a sweatshirt from 1987 from Duquesne University. No offense to Duquesne. Uh, take a quick break and let um, and let the national guys come in and uh, pay some bills. We'll be right back talking with Eric Bossy on the Coast to Coast podcast here on InsideCarolina.com. Hey, guys, this is Ross Martin from Inside Carolina, and I want to talk to you about Inside Carolina's new podcast sponsor, it's Blue Shark Vodka. Blue Shark Vodka is a family-owned vodka company based out of Wilmington and Wrightsville, North Carolina. It's available in all 100 counties. And the thing about Blue Shark Vodka is it's the smoothest vodka in the world. It's made with sweet North Carolina corn to create the world's smoothest vodka. It's been distilled four times and then mellowed for 28 days to create that full blooming and awaking flavor. Each batch is in triple filtered, giving it a smooth, clean finish and eliminates any of the alcohol bite. Guys, I've been using it recently with some soda water, fruit juice, little lime juice. It's great for tailgates. It's light, it's smooth, and it's an award-winning premium vodka from North Carolina, local and family-owned. And it's available, once again, in all 100 counties. So head to your local ABC store to check out Blue Shark Vodka. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, we're back. I have held Sean Moran at bay long enough. He has a absolutely just major follow-up that he wants to hit Eric with. So, Sean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to step away and allow you to dive back in, man. Uh, definitely not a major follow-up, although I could probably could go off of, you know, the Beal, Austin Rivers, and Scal, and all those guys, just because that was probably my heyday in terms of, of seeing, seeing guys, you know, numerous, numerous times. But in terms of the 21 class, um, you know, that was a class that got cut a little bit short. That was a, a big class for Carolina that they had coming in. But none of those guys got to really test themselves in the all-star games or, or really, you know, some of them did the state tournaments. But you know, when, when you're in those all-star games, it's the best of the best going against each other. And w- when you're watching those, how do you kind of take that into account after seeing somebody's work for maybe two, three years, and now all of a sudden they're playing against, you know, the best of the best? Um, so I guess the question is, how do you kind of take that into account? And then two, how do you think that affected some of the rankings for the, the 21 guys? You know, this is a great question because I would say, I would have answered this much differently, maybe even as recently as five years ago, definitely 10 years ago. Uh, I remember the early days in my career, I've been doing this now for going on 21 years, when you would go to the McDonald's All-American game or the Hoop Summit or something like that, the game didn't really matter. It always turns into what it is. It's an all-star game. You know, I laugh every year. People complain about it like, you know, how do you not know what you're getting into at this point? But it used to be those, those practices, especially once those guys got to scrimmage against each other, East versus West or what, what have you were, were, were legitimately like intense. There were NBA guys there prior to the elimination of being able to jump straight out of high school. And that was really the first, Oh, I guess NBA guys are there now too. So it was a chance to really get a, a first impression with NBA guys. And also, Guys didn't play with each other as much in the summer. There weren't as many camps. There weren't as many exposure things. So the intensity level was a lot higher. And I felt like guys showed up with a lot more to prove at those events. So I I think there was a lot more value to be had in them. But I think today there's there's more all-star games. You've got Jordan Brand. You've got Iverson is coming into this. Uh, You've got, you've got other things that are happening. So the experience is, I don't want to, yeah, it is watered down a little bit. The experience is watered down. And I also think that uh, many more times guys are showing up to these games entitled feeling that they've, they've belonged there the entire time. And there's just not that same intensity. It's more of a, of a, of a week long party. And I'm not saying there aren't moments and stuff, but as I've gotten older and as, as things have changed, you know, things change with chimes. This isn't a old man yells at the cloud or at the sky situation. This is just a, you, know, you gotta be realistic. Um, my priorities at 18 years old were different than today's 18 year old. My father's priorities at 18 years old were much different than mine. And, you know, times change, things evolve. And I think we have to be willing to sit back and take this all in and, and while we'd like to have these ideals, ideals that, hey, here's what I think is important. So these kids think it's important too. It's not that way. So I think the experience has been really watered down 
I think the competitive edge and the practices has been lost. So I don't think they're near as good nor nearly as important as an evaluation tool as they used to be. Now, maybe in the case of, of we're really trying to decide a contested number one position, you know, maybe Chet Holmgren and Paula Boncaro would have just flat gotten after each other at the McDonald's All-American game workouts or something like that. We don't know. But I think that I would have been more reliant on their long-term bodies of work when putting these things together. And maybe I'm wrong in this approach. Maybe what everyone else who's there sees is different than what I'm seeing, but that's just my take and how I see it. So they're still important because you want as many things as possible, but I don't want to let a couple days of practice outweigh a complete body of work. Now, if there's a legitimate, like hotly contested deal, well, that might make things a little bit differently. Or if someone just comes and just blows you away, like, you know, maybe, okay, I'm on the, I'm on the committee. Um, Jackson Grant who's a freshman at Washington now made the team. And I thought, okay, that's a little bit of a stretch to me, but he got voted in. So congratulations. Maybe he would have gotten there and he's a guy that I would have watched pretty closely to be like, okay, what am I missing that other people thought he should be in this game that I think he's a little bit of a borderline pick, right? Maybe a kid like him, I would have focused on him a lot more and, and used it a lot more as an evaluation tool. And, and maybe his ranking might've gone up quite a bit with us, but overall, like I said, I think they've lost a little bit of their luster. Um, I'd love to see it come back some, I don't know how you do that. And I don't think it's necessarily a, a thing of these kids don't get it. It's just the setup of the entire system. Um, you know, it, it's considered for most of these guys, like a birthright to make the McDonald's team, not an honor. And I don't know how we get back to a point of getting guys to understand how truly big of an honor it is to make the game versus like, okay, you know, I've, I've been destined for this since the eighth grade. Um, and once we can answer that question, maybe we can get back to it, but that's kind of where I am with it. As the show's resonant old codger, I absolutely take no umbrage with you being the old man that shouts at a cloud, if that's the route you wanted to take. But um, I certainly will accept your disclaimer and we'll, uh, we'll keep that in mind. All right. I want to give uh, our listeners and uh, my, my two um, venerable co-hosts here. Um, I want to see... If you well, you know what? Hang on. I've just been hit something in the chat that Sherelle wants to throw out. Um, Sherelle, go ahead. Ask ask your question, man. I'll I'll save mine for the I, end. I'm sorry. It, we we have you. So real quick, just super short. I just I'm just very curious. You're commissioner of grassroots, all grassroots basketball, and you can make one change today. What do you do? One change in grassroots. I would eliminate the reliance on shoe leagues that have created separation among guys. Um, the shoe leagues are very important. I don't think they're bad things. I think they're good, but in the summer of 2020, the few things that we were able to see go on. And then in the spring and into July, we saw a lot more, um, you know, interconference play, so to speak. We saw more Under Armour teams play Nike teams. We saw more Adidas teams play independent teams and so on and so forth. And I thought that was good. I thought that gave a lot of added exposure to players who did not play for shoe teams. I think it allowed us to 
to just kind of see guys in different situations. And I think it's good for the kids. Like the EYVL is freaking awesome. The, the three SSB is awesome. What Under Armour is doing the association is awesome. What it's doing for these guys in terms of exposure and stuff, but you know, having a lot of frank conversations with those kids over the years, I do think that by and large, by the time they're done with it, especially if you're through one system for three years, by the time you're done with it, you've seen it, done it. A little variety would be nice. Um, seeing some of those other some some of those other guys and seeing like, okay, Chris Livingston's over there playing for We All Can Go on on the Adidas circuit. You know, I don't think that guy's a top five player. I think I'm a top five player. But guess what? I play for Bill Williams. We're an EYBL team. I can't play him. Um, I think we've lost a little bit of that. So we've got to have the shoe companies. We it's, it's, it's just as it is because of how much money they dump into youth basketball and the, and the opportunities it creates. And the leagues are a good thing because whether people think so or not, Sherelle, Sean, you guys have been to these things. There is a lot of structure involved with these things. Um, there is better than average coaching than people traditionally associate with, you know, AAU grassroots ball. Um, so it's a good thing in general, but I would like to see, you know, we don't have to play 25 games against Nike teams. I think you could serve the same thing for what you're trying to do by having 15 games against Nike teams. And then maybe two other events where you play some Adidas teams, you play some UA teams, you play some unaffiliated teams. And when I started, we didn't have shoe, shoe leagues, period. You know, you went out, you went out to AU Nationals in Orlando, and it was probably a little bit more East to Midwest focused. But you had teams from all the, the different companies there. And you could really see when you went out to Vegas, it was a total free-for-all of what was going on. So I'd like to get back to a little bit more of that. And I think that would be outstanding for everyone involved. Like my, my biggest thing that I've ever and always want to do, but it will never happen. Never in a million years will they let this happen. Take the four top, take the final four teams from the Peach Jam, take the final four teams from the UA circuit take the final four teams from the Adidas finals and then the best four independent teams you can find in an August, send them to Las Vegas or Dallas or somewhere, have four, four team pools with one from each group in there and play it out. Um, you know, seed them by how they do in the pools and then play it out and, and see who's left standing. I think that would be amazing. It would be an incredible event, but I don't see any way that the shoe companies let that happen. So one, uh, one, one quick question on staying on AAU and, you know, once again, for a while, I was always just reading, reading the reports and reading the recaps of these games before I actually got to, you know, start going to a lot, a lot more. Is there one game, um, obviously this, this spans a, a good career, but is there one AAU game that just kind of rises to the top of your, your yeah. mind? And yeah, Team Texas against the D.C. Blue Devils in April of 2005 in Hampton. <laughs> Kevin Durant as, as a rising, I guess, senior, and Jarrell Arthur for Team Texas as, as a rising junior. Um, Durant was at like 40 or 45. Jarrell Arthur went off, um, kind of established himself on the scene. That's one that stands out to me. Um, another one is the summer of 2003 in Las Vegas, the Atlanta Celtics against Seattle Rotary. Uh, the Celtics had Dwight Howard, Josh Smith, Randolph Morris, Javaris Crittenden. Rotary had Marvin Williams, uh, 
Terrence Williams. Oh, the other Williams, Marcus Williams went to Arizona, uh, Rodney Stuckey. I mean, just pros all over the place. It was a semifinal game. I also remember because my bachelor party was the night before. Um, <laughs> and going back in and getting coaches to give me their passes to bring back out to my friends who were with me on my bachelor party to bring them in to see this and get an idea of what I did. So that stands out for not only being a great game with high level talent, but also just because of other sentimental stuff. But, you know, those are a couple of old ones that really stick out to me. Great. All right. So last thing, and I actually like that we stopped and kind of went down this uh, wistful journey with you before we let you go, Eric. And we're talking to Eric Bossy, uh, National B-Ball Director for 24-7 Sports. Last question, Eric, and I think that we're officially uh, outside of the statute of limitations on this since he just recently retired. But uh, I know it would be entertaining for our listeners and viewers. Tell us your best Roy Williams recruiting story. Uh, if there's one that you feel like you can tell that you know won't really break any confidence or won't really uh won't really ruin any relationships you have, uh, a good Roy Williams story from the trail that you, that you want to share with us as your as your parting shot. Um, boy, that's a good question. Also, now while I'm thinking about this. Jarrell Arthur and, and Kevin Durant were in the same class, weren't they? Yeah, um, Ty Lawson so, was in that game too. I think. Yeah, yeah Ty Lawson was in that game too. Yeah. So. I want to say they were both rising juniors, so it would have been, I guess, 2004, not 2005. But you get where I am is both these guys kind of going nuts and it being like, holy crap, Kevin Durant's Kevin Durant and whatever. So backtracking. Um, ooh, best Roy Williams story. Um, man, <laughs> there's a few because I don't know if you guys know this about Roy Williams. He doesn't exactly talk recruits a lot with guys like me. But I actually have a, developed a pretty good relationship with a coach Williams over the years and would always sit down and chat with him, especially the last couple of years at events and stuff like that, just cause he got used to seeing me and you know, I wasn't going to try and get up all in his business, but uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's a recruiting story, but it's a more personal one that we'll I always find kind of funny. Um, some of you may or may not know that about four or five years ago, I, well, I lost a pretty considerable amount of weight in a pretty short time. And uh, coach Williams hadn't seen me in a while and I'm walking by and he stops me and he's got this very, very concerned look on his face. Like I can tell he's conflicted. He's like, he's like, Eric, do you mind sitting down for a second? I'm like, yeah, coach, what's up? You know, he's like, he's like, I don't know how to ask this, but um, are you sick? I'm like, what do you mean? Am I sick? He's like, well, you just look much different than the last time I saw you. I want to make sure that you're not sick. I'm like, no, actually coach the opposite. I'm the healthiest I've been in, 15, 20 years and just the look of relief on his face. And he's like, I've seen you for a couple of days. I didn't know how to ask it. I didn't want to offend you. And I was just dying laughing inside that like, you know, here, here I'm walking by and Roy Williams is thinking, God, what, what, what disease does this guy have? Not thinking, Oh, Hey, great job of working out Evos, you know? And then, <laughs> but then once, once I told him that it was through, you know, diet and hard work, he, he was very, you know, gracious to me and things like that so that one always stands out just just on a on a personal level um another one was uh sitting there years ago lebron james had a broken wrist during the summer between his uh junior and senior year so he didn't get to do the AU circuit but they kind of paraded him around everywhere and it was at the nike all-american camp after the day was done LeBron went out and just started shooting jump shots 
And I sat there, it was basically just me and Roy Williams. And we sat there for a good 30, 35 minutes and just watched LeBron shoot jump shots with a cast on. And he was just, I was like, coach, you know, don't you have like a dinner or something to go to? And he's like, this is the closest I'm ever going to get to this guy playing for me. So I'm going to soak it up for as long as I can. And I just thought that it was kind of cool that he could see what that guy was destined for and just wanted to kind of take a second and kind of breathe it in because he's at least in my mind, that's what he saw was happening. And he was just kind of mesmerized by seeing what this guy was going to be. So that one, especially cause I was so young and new to the business to be sitting with there with a legend like that and, and have him engaging in small talk was always something that I'll really remember about him. That's awesome. I appreciate you sharing those. I would challenge our listeners to try to imagine your interaction with coach Williams after your, you know, after your weight loss and try to imagine his response with a couple of dad gums and, you know, the consternation that he would usually, oh. he would usually show to folks. I, I think that absolutely makes your story amazing. Yeah. I love that. And, and it was great too, because you could tell he felt so bad because he didn't, he was so worried he was, was going to or the, or the, or, or worst case scenario, maybe I was actually sick. Right. And now what, what, what do you do with that? But luckily I, I was perfectly healthy. And um, there happened to be another, another coaching friend of mine who was actually a former player of coach Williams nearby who just started roasting him <laughs> on things, you know? So it was, it was, it was like, I, I doubt he remembers it, but I remember it. And it was just one of those things like, you know, this, this is, this is kind of funny. And I, I just appreciated that, you know, for someone who supposedly doesn't care about guys in my line of work yeah. that he cared enough to pull me aside and make sure that I was okay. And then go on from there. Cause that was the most important thing. Well, and the LeBron story too, I think, you know, folks, folks will know, I see subscribers and, and UNC fans alike will all recognize that he was, he was fond of saying um, to appreciate the journey you know, it mm-hmm. was obvious from his story about sitting in the gym and just watching LeBron that he was, like you said, taking a moment to appreciate the journey. Um, Eric, I really appreciate the honesty and you opened up with us tonight. Uh, Sherelle, Sean, you guys got anything for Eric before we let him get back to uh, to his life? I'll just say I was at that at that uh, game in Hampton, too, and it, it really was incredible. So I, I was hoping that was going to be on your list. Yeah, it's, it. it's, it's, it's way up there, and I'm sure there's others more recent that I'm forgetting but I'll probably need another 10 years before I go back to like, Oh yeah, that one was really cool. I, for some reason, those years, 2004 to 2007 are just kind of like burned in my memory. Cause that's when I was like really out there chasing it, thinking that, Hey, you know, maybe this could be a full-time career versus a side gig for me. And it just real formative years for me. So that stuff always sticks with me. That's strong. Sean, you got anything for e-boss before we let him go? No, thanks for coming on. Always fun to to hear the hear the stories, and and hopefully we'll be uh, seeing you on the road, um, you know, this uh, this coming season. Yep, Eric, we certainly appreciate it, man. That's Eric Bossy, uh, absolutely gem of a storyteller. I don't know if he knew that coming into this, but I, I I'm very appreciative of his storytelling ability. But he's the national basketball. <coughs> excuse me. National Basketball Director for uh, 24-7 Sports. Got through this whole thing without having a, a frog in my throat. So, Eric, we appreciate your time. Appreciate you being here. want to thank Sherelle McMillan and Sean Moran, as always, for being the rock stars that they are. I am just Joey Powell. Remember, if you haven't, uh, subscribe, rate, review us. All that stuff really helps the show. Uh, we appreciate you guys being a part of this little community we got here. Appreciate you subscribing and being a part of Inside Carolina. And we appreciate you listening. We will catch you next time on the Coast to Coast Podcast here on InsideCarolina.com.
Like. CBS Friday. TV's hottest show is Fire Country. I'm not a hero. I'm in orange for a reason. They're taking 12 months off your sentence. You're free. Lady. With a special epic season finale. Now that I'm out, I need something to get me up in the morning. You are a firefighter. You speak. That will be unforgettable. In the name of your life's happiness, go get your girl. She's getting married tomorrow. Says, when do you let anything get in the way of what you want? The Fire Country season finale, Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus.